All right. So, uh, candidly, I'm glad that you're all here tonight. But if I'm going to be honest with you, I'm also feeling a bit sad this evening as well um, for the reason that we've said a couple times that it is the second to last salt company. And that genuinely does make me sad. Um, If you're going to be around this summer, we can't wait for summer salt. But the fact remains that spring 2023 is coming to an end. Next week, the senior sharing is going to be awesome. It's going to be really high, but it's also going to be sad because it's going to be their last salt company. Endings like this just have this tendency to to cause us to think about the future. They have this tendency to cause us to like look way ahead. We start to ask questions. If I'm honest with you, I still like ask questions. We're coming to the end of this semester. Okay, what is the summer going to look like? All right, what is the fall going to look like? What is kickoff on September 7th going to look like? What's next year going to look like? I can guess and hope and dream and plan, but I can't tell you the answers to those questions. You're going overseas this summer. A a, a group of you are going overseas. Nine of you are going overseas this summer. Who are you going to be when you get back? I mean, like, I'm asking questions. You're probably asking questions too. What am I going to do this summer, some of you, what am I going to do next year? What am I going to do after I graduate? One, two, three, hopefully not four years. What, what is that going to look like? Endings like this cause us to look to the future. These questions come up. You're, and it pulls us to a place often where we can fall into either like worrying about the future if we're honest, if we're just honest, guys, come on, wait, like, let's just be honest. If we're worrying about the future or just kind of waving it off because we feel so positive and so sure that we know exactly what's going to happen next. In either case, regardless of which one you land in, you likely do one thing. You plan. <laughs> I hope, well, I believe that you do, at least to some point. You are at a university, which means that you planned to come here to get a degree at one of the last institutionalized liminal spaces that is known in the West for you to come, be prepared, and then leave. Right? That's the purpose of you coming to university is not to be here forever. Right? Salt Company comes to an end for everybody because everybody in this room, Lord willing, is going to graduate. So there's this, there's this part where we start to just like plan and think about and look towards the future. I wonder if you've ever wondered if there's a way that you can plan your future, I'm going to say it like this, into the will of God. Like, like not to plan your future and then say, all right, God, come along with me. But James tonight in our text is actually going to help us look directly at what it looks to like to plan our future into the will of God. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just teach the text, James chapter 4. If you've got a Bible, you can go right there. I'm going to give you the main idea, ask a couple of questions, answer them, and take my seat. Cool? Cool. All right. If the word doesn't do the work, then the work won't get done. So let's get into it. James chapter 4, verse 13. Come now, you who say... Today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and we'll do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do, the good thing to do, and fails to do it, for him, it is sin. 
All right, let's jump straight into the text. Uh, We're coming off of James last week. Jared taught us James saying, hey, God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. And then James turns his direction right off of that into planning the future in a way that is leaning into the grace and reality and presence and trust of God and not a pride and arrogance that trusts in ourself. He sets this up with a plausible hypothetical. Did you see it? where he said, hey, this group of people said that tomorrow we'll go to this place. He's being vague with his language because he's trying to speak to a large group of people, the communities that would be reading this letter that he's written. And it's, mo- it's very likely that they would have been saying something like this. Hey, tomorrow we're going to leave for a year to go sell this and this place, do this and that thing. Today or tomorrow, this is what we're going to do. They're planning for the future. It's right there in the text. And what I need to point out from the beginning is that James doesn't have a problem with planning. He really doesn't. I've heard some people sometimes just say like, let go and let God, right? Like I I get it. And I think it can be helpful sometimes. But, But if that means that you don't plan, that also means that you might be ignoring other parts of the Bible that actually encourage you to plan wisely. Proverbs 24, 27 is one of my favorite Proverbs. Prepare your work outside, get your fields ready, and then build your house. It's a, it's a proverb of proper planning. Jesus says this in relation to following him when he says, count the cost. Both of these are wise statements about planning, looking ahead wisely. James is not contradicting the Proverbs or Jesus. James has no problem with the idea of planning. What he has a problem with is the kind of planning that centers the self and ignores God. He's got a problem with the kind of planning that is arrogant and saying, I know what's happening next. God, get on or get out of here. And not the kind of planning that says, Lord, if it's your will. To address how silly this is, and I think that's the right word for it. (laughs) In verse 14, look at this. James says, you don't know what tomorrow brings. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little time and then poof, you are gone. James is bringing some perspective into planning. He's doing what the writer of Psalm 90 is asking. He says, Lord, teach me how to number my days. I I did this this week, and if I live to be 80, I have 17,892 days left. Now, that's a lot of days, but it also shows and proves that there's a limitation to the days that I have. I don't want to be morbid, but I do want to be honest. There's a limitation to the days that every single person in this room has in a culture, in a context that wants to tell you over and over and over again that you can be everywhere at once and you can be unlimited there is a reality that you are limited. You were designed limited, like you have limitations. Often we find those limitations when we run smack dab into the wall of our limitations, but I wanna remind you before you run into the wall that you are limited, I am limited. James is teaching us to consider that we are limited, to plan in light of us being limited. Trippy Red was quoting James when he said, you gonna die. Like, man, I, I'm like, I, I realize the more and more as I get older, like I wish I could go back and talk to me when I was younger and just look me in the eyes and say, your days are not unlimited. Please determine what you're living for. Like, please determine what you're about. James gives a heavy dose of perspective and planning before giving an incredible principle for planning. Verse 15, instead, James says, you ought to say, 
If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. If the Lord wills. This is not some magic incantation that you just like sprinkle on the end of a sentence and be like, oop, done, right? That's not what James is saying. You only say if the Lord wills, if your embodied life actually first proves and shapes and forms and is formed by that reality that you are desiring the will of God in your life. And you are saying that because it is an overflow of the life that you're already living. Something that's directed towards, uh, consumed with, desiring to step into, to live into, to plan into the will of God. James is saying that there's two kinds of planners. There's one planner who says, if the Lord wills, because you're intentionally planning into the will of God. And then he says, there's the verse 16 planner, as it is you boast in your arrogance and all such boasting is evil. This is the planner that ignores their ignorance of what tomorrow holds and arrogantly assumes that they know what will or won't happen and treats God as an afterthought if they treat him at all. So to both of these, James closes this thought by saying this. So whoever, verse 17, knows the right thing, the good thing to do, and fails to do it, for them it is sin. So what's the right thing to do? What's the good thing to do in light of what James is saying? It's to plan into the will of God. Or for you note takers, here's our main idea. To plan your future around God and not God around your future. I want to tease that out because it has implications on how we not just live into the future, but how we live tomorrow. These people that James is talking about and using as an illustration, they're not simply planning years or months or weeks away. They're talking about tomorrow. Come, let us go tomorrow, and for a year we will be in this place and sell this and that thing. James is saying, if you tell me how you plan tomorrow, I'll tell you how you plan your future. If you plan God into your future, I'll tell God into your tomorrow, then, then I'll, I'll, I'll tell you how you live your future. If you plan tomorrow around God, I'll tell you how you live your future. If you plan God around your tomorrow that you've already decided is going to happen, I'll tell you how you'll plan your future. Because a day becomes a week, becomes a month, becomes a year, becomes a college term, becomes a decade, becomes a future. James is talking about the attitude of the planner. A trust of the will of God and a willingness to build around God or a dismissal of the will of God and an unwillingness to build around God. I am, I've just been thinking and praying about this text and like, I could say it like, this is my pastor heart, but I just want to be like, this is like just another brother in Christ, like just someone who was a sinner that's been saved by Jesus that has lived a little bit longer than most of the people, I think everybody except for Jared in this room, I so want you to build tomorrow around God and not God around tomorrow. I so want you to intentionally plan your future into and towards and in alignment with the will of God. So I want to devote the rest of my time towards helping you know how to do that. I want to tell you what I wish that I knew when I was sitting in seats just like this at a college campus in Tampa, Florida. I'm going to give you some some principles along the way, some ideas along the way. We're going to lean in some texts along the way, but I want to give you three questions. And the three questions are this. Question number one, how can I know God's will? Seems important if you want to plan into it. How can I know God's will? Question number two, how do you actually live into God's will or plan into God's will? And question number three, I think some of you will will want, I know has helped me, 
What if I don't want to do the thing that I know is God's will? All right. Question number one, how can I know God's will? It's a good question. It's an essential one. It's one that needs some framing. I love this one verse. We could go so many places for the will of God. I'm going to land in one verse, okay? So do not take this as the whole, but please take it as a significant verse for understanding it. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. You're going to want to write that one down. This is the verse. This is God's will that you should be sanctified. You want to know what God's will is for you? 100%, every circumstance, every situation, every choice, every place that you're in, God's will for you is that you would be sanctified. Rudy, sanctified is kind of a big word that needs a little bit of definition. All right, let me step back. God's will for you is that you would become more like Jesus. That is always the will of God for you. I can say that with definity. God's will for you is that you and your words, your works and your ways would become more like the one that you follow that you would become more like Jesus, that you would become, you would apprentice your life to him. That's what that word disciple means, that you would learn from, lean into, not just take on the lecture, but the lifestyle of Jesus, that you would become more like your savior, Christ. That is God's ultimate will for us, our becoming more like Jesus. So, if that's the end goal, let me step down just a level. When I talk about God's will, there may be some picture or metaphor that you're imagining. Oftentimes, we live into metaphors. Um, and so, like, you might have this idea of God's will as, like, it's got to be this road map. I start here, and I go boom, 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 and then I wind up wherever this place is, right? Or you have like the picture of the stepping stones, like I step onto one and then the other one appears and I step onto that one and then another one appears and I step on, right? Like you've got, the, like there's these metaphors, there's these pictures that exist as we try to lean into what God's will is. And there's something to both of those, right? Like uh, Proverbs 16, three says that a man chooses which way he would go, but the Lord directs his steps. Psalm 139, verse 16, all the days were ordained for me before I lived even one. But that doesn't automatically mean that we know all the happenings of all of those days, nor does it exclude the reality that we are involved in what is ordained on those days. God's will does not bring us to a point of fatalism where we throw up our hands, stop caring, stop planning, stop being wise, stop living into what's around us. God's will brings us into a place of flourishing where we experience life with God as we grow more and more sure that we are in the will of God. Let me explain it like this. Um, let me give you a, maybe a different metaphor for understanding the will of God. How many of you have been to a buffet before? I know that not everybody has. Okay, um, do you, so we all know what a buffet, everyone knows what a buffet is. Why am I describing that? Okay, a buffet, lots of food, but you walk in and there's a restaurant, right? I, I want you to, to think of it like, like this. I mean, if you saw me at a rest, if you saw me at a buffet when I was in high school, you would lose what little respect you already have for me. I, there, there were things that I did to buffets that were, um, Okay, it's so funny. I was typing this out earlier today and Google uh, actually tried to correct that sentence to be what you did at buffets. And I was like, no, 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 Google. These are things I did to buffets. Like I, it, I, it was verbal, like it was bad. I mean, I mean, 12 plates was not off the, like there is a time where we went to a football game and there was a buffet at the football game. And I went in four hours, I went 21 times through this buffet. I am not proud of that, but it's just true, okay? I'll be humble and transparent first. You guys just come along, right? Like I, 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 I am not, there's so much behind that that is like 
gnarly and we don't have time, but, but there is just, oh, it was so, so rough. So there's two ways I could walk you through a buffet, okay? I could tell you exactly what to eat and what not to eat as you walk into the restaurant, right? Eat the food, don't eat the table, okay? Like you walk into a buffet and it's like, every, you can eat anything. And it's like, anything, anything. Don't eat the table. Don't eat the utensils, just eat the food, okay? There's some things you should and shouldn't eat as you walk in. And then I could teach you, once you walk up to the buffet where the food is, how to make healthy choices as you look at the smorgasbord in front of you. The God's will is similar to taking a trip to the buffet in this way, in both of these ways. Okay, so first, there are some things that God clearly articulates his will on. There are things where he says, don't eat the table, do eat the food. <laughs> don't eat the utensils, do eat the food. Don't eat the tablecloth, do eat the food. For, for an example, 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 3, it's God's will that you should be sanctified, is not the end of that verse. There is a colon that comes after the word sanctified. It's God's will that you should become more like Jesus. Colon, here's how. Colon, here's what that looks like. As it relates to, to knowing and to leaning into this will of God, don't eat the table, do eat the food. It's not that he's saying these things to withhold something from you, but oftentimes he's saying these things because he wants to protect you, because he wants to protect you from something, because he wants to preserve you, because you're so valuable to him. Just look at this. 1 Thessalonians 4, 4 verse 3 continues. It's God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that's holy and honorable. That is not a statement of withholding. That is a statement of value and protection. That's God saying your body is worth more than immorality. It's worth holiness and honor. Like that's, that's God looking at your physical body and saying, that bears my image. That's worth holiness and honor, not, not something that would, not something that would, that would corrupt, nothing that would pull it away from its original intent and original design. It's God's will that you would be sanctified. So as you learn how to say yes to some things and no to other things, you're actually growing in your sanctification. You're growing in becoming like Christ. You're growing in being led by the Spirit, leaning into the Scripture and not yourself, in the process of avoiding sin and living into the known will of God, not eating the table, moving rather to the buffet, <laughs> moving to where the food is, the edible pieces, the good things are. But then you get to the buffet, and here it is. You got choices. Everything on the buffet in this example, it looks good. But even if something looks good, it can still be a wrong choice. So how do you choose? How do you know what to pick, what to eat, what to put on your plate? This is another part of the maturing, sanctifying work of becoming more like Jesus as you live and plan into the will of God. You learn how to make healthy choices at the buffet of food and at the buffet of, of life. You make healthy choices by living by a set of predetermined principles that help you form the decisions that you make. Look, you don't walk up, <laughs> you, just, you don't walk up to a buffet and say, today, at this moment, right now, I'm going to decide to make healthy choices. No, you don't. You fill it with fried chicken. Like you, just, like, you just go off. You just fill it with whatever you want. That's not what happens. You don't walk up to the buffet and decide in that moment to be healthy. Healthy choices at a buffet come from decisions you make before you walk into the restaurant, before the choice is in front of you. 
As you look at the choices that are in front of you, the future that is in front of you, as you avoid eating the table and you stay away from what is clearly not the will of God and you look at the food, what are some questions, some principles that could help you make decisions about today, tomorrow, next week, next month, next year, the future that would help you to make healthy choices as it relates to discerning, coming to know what the will of God is. I wanna give you a paradigm for discerning the will of God through four ideas, four questions that I'm gonna move through kind of quickly. You can flesh these out in connection group and on your own. But four ideas, they'll be up here on the screen. Number one, the Bible. <laughs> Lean into the scripture. If the, if, if the scripture, we say this so often, if the Bible is the story of God that leads us to Jesus, then as we live into and in alignment with that story, we will become more like the one the book is about. We will become more like Jesus as we lean into it. So the Bible allows us to answer the question, is this good? Is the thing, of the things I'm looking at in front of me, is it, is it good? James 4, 17, if you know what is good and don't do it, it's sin. So don't do that. Do what is good. Will it help you become more like Jesus? Lean into the scriptures and let them answer the question, is it good? Prayer, am I listening? A lot of times when we think about prayer, we think about asking, God, do you want me to do this? God, do you want me to do that? God, is it this? Is it that? Is it this? Is it that? And we ask and we ask and we ask and we ask and then we say amen and we walk away and do whatever we're going to do anyways. We don't leave space to listen. I want to be really clear here. God sounds like what he wrote. <laughs> So if you want to learn how to listen to God, it starts by being in the scripture. Those two work together. All of these actually play into and work together. So is it good? Am I listening? Am I trying to speed through a choice? Am I actually listening to what God might be saying to me through his word? Or what God might be trying to say to me through my community? Which brings us to number three, counsel. Is it wise? Is it wise? There's a lot of Proverbs that talk about wisdom coming from counsel. Proverbs 11 says, there's no guidance in the people, uh, where there is no guidance, the people fall, but in the abundance of counselors, there's victory. Proverbs 12, 15 says, the way of the fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man is he who listens to counsel. Those and, and so many more lay out the need that we have for people to be around. It's a community that we live with and, and that we can lean into and that we can trust. It's often true that as you bring what you're trying to decide or what you're trying to discern or what you're trying to figure out to people around you, that they may have a clearer view of it than you do because you're caught up in the swirl of all the things that you're trying to sort through and sort around and you could lay that out in front of somebody and they say, oh dude, like for two years you've been saying you wanna do this, do you remember that? We've been praying for this every week at Connection Group. I think like this might be actually what God's leading you into they might have a clearer picture of that than you do while you're in the swirl of what you're trying to decide. Wise counsel is a gift from God for us to discern what his will might be. Wise counsel that brings you to prayer, that brings you back to the scripture. It also reminds you of this fourth one, mission. Is it worth it? Like, is this something that's actually worth giving your life to, giving your time to? Your life and your time are valuable. They're not to be spent on trite or small things. Is it going to help make disciples? Is it going to, in the words of the minor prophet Amos, lead to justice rolling like a river and mercy like a stream? Is it gonna serve the least of these? Is it gonna help you love your neighbor? Like what is the, the mission of the thing that you're leaning into and is it, is it worth it? 
You might walk through those four ideas, those four concepts, and be left with one choice, and it's like, all right, God, I think this is actually what you have for me then. You might walk through that and have a number of choices left. It might ax some of them out, but you might have a few left over. So what do you do then? All right. When I was uh, graduating from college, I had, no joke, six opportunities that were in front of me. Three were in Florida, two were in North Carolina, and one was in India. I um, I'd gone through like a process like this with my mentor, right? Like I didn't follow Jesus until I, it was my uh, summer before my freshman year of college. I put my trust in Jesus. I walked three and a half years with this man. I'm sitting down with him and I'm like, I don't know what to do. I think all six of these are good choices. It doesn't seem like, I just don't know what to do. Like, I think they're all good. I think they could all be wise. I've been listening in prayer. They're all mission driven. Like, I don't, I don't really, I don't really know like what to do. I'm just kind of stuck because I've got all these choices. And uh, my mentor Raul brought me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 31, which says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. And he looked at me and he said, Rudy, are are you going to pick one of these, whichever one of these you pick, are you going to do it for the glory of God? I said, well, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to try, like, I'm going to, that's my intent, that's my aim. And then he said, then God might just be asking you to choose and to trust him in choosing. That was so helpful for me. And I can draw a decision from that choice that I made in that moment to me standing right here. Like there's no reason if I don't say yes to that decision that I ended up leaning into, that I go from Florida to Iowa to Pennsylvania to Iowa to Madison. That makes, there's no other way that that works out. So I thank God for his will working itself out of my life and along the way, getting to become more like Jesus. So these are four questions that can actually help you live into the will of God for your life as you plan and make decisions about what you'll do after you graduate and what you'll do tomorrow. There's just things, there's things that God does as he like allows you kindly to struggle and to lean into and to work through. Okay, what am I supposed to do? God, I'm going to lean into your word, lean into prayer, lean into community, lean into mission. Like, and I'm going to lean into your glory. I want these things from you. There's actually something that God develops and shapes and forms in you through that process that I don't know if it gets formed any other way. Actually in saying, I want to discern and learn and lean into the will of God for my life. And it's like, yes, and along the way, he actually forms those desires inside of you. He shapes and forms you to become more like Jesus along the way. It builds a real trust in you. Not some like silver platter, here's the easy decision for you to make. Little like cheap checkbox trust, but like a real deep trust that says, God, I've been working through this with you. I believe this is the decision that you want me to make, and I'm going to Step into it with faith and trust that you are with me and that's enough. There's something that just is built in you as you develop that kind of character and that, that kind of weight that eventually is able to say, if the Lord wills, this is what I'll do. Keeps me from ignoring what is good and sinning. It leads to a life marked by flourishing and trust as you lean back into trusting God with each step as you plan into his will. It's how you know the will of God, but what does that actually look like? What are some pictures of that? I want to lean into James chapter 5, actually, to show a couple of case studies of what it actually looks like to plan into the will of God. I'm going to summarize these sections uh, very briefly to, to show how they reveal what planning into God's will could look like. 
So case study number one, James 5, verses 1 through 6, talks about a group of rich people who've stored up their wealth, withhold from the community, withheld money from the community of faith, and pay for their workers. They've lived in luxury at the expense of others, and they've condemned or murdered anybody who's come to bring righteousness or justice to them. This is a character of the, this is a portrait of the character that greed, selfishness, and materialism actually forms in somebody. This is not good. No one listened. There's no wise counsel, and it was not worth it. This clearly is not the will of God. So what should you do with the money that you make? What should you do with the wealth that you may acquire and build up? Well, you should care for your household, but be generous to your community of faith and the community and the city around you. If you have employees, you should pay them at least a living wage, likely above that. You should care for the poor and for the least of these. When the opportunity to do justice and righteousness with your money, when the opportunity to love someone who is really difficult to love comes across your path, you say yes. It means that you pre-plan what you have on you when you walk down State Street. It means you've got something for that person that's asking for money or for food. It means you're preparing out of what little or much that you have to say, how can I be generous with this to the community that's around me, to the people that are around me, to the poor that are around me. That's what it looks like to prepare to use your money. What Case study number two, James 5, 7 through 11 talks about waiting for the Lord to come. Christ has died, he has risen, and he will come again and make all things new. Those who are in Christ will have eternal life with him. Those who are not will have eternal death apart from him. But in between this moment and that moment, how do we live? James actually gives a picture of that specifically within the community. What is God's will for us in community as we wait on him? Verse 8. Be patient and strengthen your hearts in community. Verse 9, don't complain to one another in community. Verse 10, consider and remind one another of the examples you have of suffering and patience as you experience suffering and you are being patient. James gives the game plan for what we do between being saved by Jesus and not yet being next face-to-face with Jesus that Christians experience and live in. You strengthen one another in community and you are patient with one another in community. You do not complain that tears apart. You You give courage that builds up. You strengthen one another and you wait patiently with one another. So you plan to do that. I plan to bring courage when I come into a community like this. I got a couple people on my mind before and after that. I'm like, I can't wait to see them because I want to encourage them. It means that if someone's doing something that's testing me, I'm more empathetic to actually lean in and wonder, I wonder what's going on with them, that they would be saying this to me. I'm patient with them so that I can actually love them in the community that I'm in. You plan for that. Case study number three. James chapter 5, verse 12. It's a single verse, just one, that's intended to form the way that we speak to one another. Be truthful. Let your yes be yes and your no be no from the words of Jesus himself. How much simpler is life when you don't have to try to like balance and remember who you've told what to? That's partially true or exaggerated. He's saying if you are truthful, this way of speech is freeing. If you are truthful, you are trustworthy. You have high character. You're a kind of person that can actually speak the truth to one another in love, to build one another up, but to actually step in and exhort and challenge one another as well. It does not mean be a jerk, but it does mean that you tell the truth. So you plan to gently, but with strength, tell the truth. 
So when you plan what to do with your money, how you wait on the Lord, while you speak to one another, you can actually look ahead and say, oh, I can plan for that. I can plan to be generous. I can plan to strengthen and be patient. I can plan to be truthful and trustworthy. Newsflash, all of those things would help you to become more like Jesus. Because God's will for you is your sanctification. God's will for you is that you become like him. And all of this, just as I close, is easy to say in advance when you're actually like in rooms like this. But when you step up to the buffet and you're staring at the spread in front of you, even for the person who's formed over time, a healthy disposition towards the choices in front of them still gives a side eye to the little buffet jello. You know what I'm talking about? Like those little gnarly squares of like, like what the heck? There's just nothing, it's just gelatinous sugar. But for some reason I still want it. Okay, so what do you do when you don't want the will of God? You, you can put this up on the screen. What do you do when you know what you should do, but you don't want to? Let's be honest. Please don't front with me. We've all experienced that. God, I know that this is what your word says. I know that this is what you're saying to me. I know this is what wise counsel. I know this is mission. I know what I should do. And if I'm just honest with you, I don't want to. What? What exists between these two is what I call the gap. The gap. Would not like the store, stop it. Okay, but like the gap. What do you do when you feel like your life is marked by a gap between what you want to do and what God's will is? What do you fill that gap with? Do you try to use that gap to like run away, to like ignore like the thing that you know you should do by running away, that never ended up good for anybody. You can ask Jonah, by the way. Uh, that didn't end up super well for him. Um, what, do you try to numb yourself through media or medicine to get through the gap? Do you run to a person that you can just forget about the gap with for an hour, a night, a weekend? Like, what do you do? By the way, good friends don't try to help you ignore or numb yourself out of the gap. Good friends walk into the gap with you and they pray for you and they sit with you and they, and they talk with you and they process with you. Good friends will stand in that gap with you. But what do you fill that gap with? Even as they come in, what do you guys fill that gap with? I know what is good. I don't want to do it. I don't feel like doing it. What fills that gap? It's the same thing that filled that gap and we see it in the life of Jesus. Matthew chapter 26, verses 36 through 46 shows us a picture of the gap in the life of Christ modeled in the Garden of Gethsemane. So let me set the stage for you. Jesus is going to die. He is going to be crucified for the sin of the world. This is why he's come fully God, fully human to save us and to reach us by being for us what no one else could be. No one else would come to do what Jesus could do. He would be the sacrifice that our sin required and the sacrifice that our sin needed. Our sin deserved judgment. And Jesus is heading to the cross to take on himself the judgment of the sin of the world. God takes sin seriously. So he takes that sin seriously and says, there's going to be payment for this sin. And Jesus steps in and says, I'm going to take it on myself on the cross for all who would believe in him. So Jesus goes into a garden and he gets on his knees 
after asking his disciples to stay with him. He gets on his knees and he prays to his father three times. He says, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. This moment has put so much pressure on Jesus' physical body that the capillaries in his skin have begun to burst. And as he sweats, his sweat is mixed with blood. The pain of the cross, though, would not be simply physical or emotional or mental, although it was an inconceivably brutal way to kill someone. It was also spiritual as Jesus would take the wrath of God due for sin. This is the cup that Jesus is talking about that's described through the Bible, the cup that is full of God's wrath. And Christ will drink it so that we who put our trust in him will never need to taste one drop of it. God takes sin seriously, so seriously that he sends his son to the world that he loves so that all who believe in him might not perish but have everlasting life. Apart from him, we choose condemnation. With him, we enter into salvation. And just before that moment on the cross, we see Jesus pray. My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Molly, you can come on up. Jesus brings a strong desire to God. Don't miss this. Strong desire. If you can, let this cup pass from me. This is what I, he's bringing that desire to God. If you could, this cup of wrath that I'm about to take on for the sin of the world, And then in prayer, he brings a deeper desire and says, but not my will, but yours be done. This is the Gethsemane prayer that bridges the gap. It brings the honesty of God, I would prefer this. This is my strong desire. God, this is what I actually want. I'm gonna pray an honest prayer to you. I'm gonna be myself with you right now. I'm gonna not try to front. I'm not gonna try to pretend. I'm not gonna try to bring religious, loveless language into this prayer. I'm just gonna be honest. God, I don't want to. Strong desire, deep desire, but not my will. Not my will, but yours be done. God, I don't want to, or I really want to, and I know that I shouldn't, but not my will, but yours be done. And there's something to that that just cherishes and values the will of God above even the things that I want, because I understand the goodness of God, the kindness of God, that he's merciful and gracious, that he's forgiving and slow to anger, that he's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, that he's good that says, God, I trust you. I trust you. Not my will, but yours be done. Prayer is what bridges the gap in that moment and in every moment. I'm asking you not to do this just because I'm saying it or because I have a graphic up here. I'm asking you to do this as a practice because Jesus did. If I talk you into praying in the gap, someone else will talk you out of it or you'll talk yourself out of it. Don't do it because I'm talking about it. Do it because Jesus prayed this prayer, not my will, but yours be done. And it was Jesus who would go to the cross. It was Jesus who would die for your sin. It was Jesus who would rise three days later. Jesus who made a way for us to be in relationship with God, true relationship. 
It was Jesus who made it so that we could live into the will of God, truly live. It was Jesus who made it so we could actually pray and know that we are heard, truly speak, truly listen, truly plan into his will, knowing that ultimately his will is for me to become more like my savior. He's worth building and planning and living your future and your tomorrow around, not trying to build him into, what, how could he can't fit into your day? He's too big to have a piece of you. You build around him. You plan around him because he's worth it, because he's worthy, because of what he's done through the good news that he lived, died, and rose again. I wonder what God could do with the group of people that would just say, I'm gonna build my tomorrow around you. I'm gonna build my week, my month, my life, my future. I'm gonna plan my days around you. What could that do in the way that we love one another? What could that do in the way that you even as a connection group look inward at one another and outward at the campus? I think UW would be blessed by that. I think you would be strengthened by that. I think you would find a deep trust God in that. So if you do me the favor of just closing your eyes and bowing your heads, just, just for a moment here. If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, I can tell you exactly what God's will is for you tonight, what God's desire is for you tonight. First Timothy chapter two, verse four says that God desires that all people would be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. So before you think about planning into the will of God, Christ is offering you a way to come into the family of God. So you can put your trust in Jesus as your Lord and your Savior tonight. If you're a Christian, maybe you find yourself in the gap. Maybe you can see you're like, okay, this is, I've been leaning, I've been been, I've been looking, that's that, I know God, that's what you want for me, I know that's what you want me to do, and I don't want to, or I'm afraid, or X, Y, or Z thing, and you just feel that gap, and I just want to invite you tonight to, to this practice of the Gethsemane prayer, to bring your strong desire to God, and hand it to Him, and exchange it for a deeper desire, not my will, but yours be done. So I want you to take a moment just to pray. Just whatever you need. You can pray, you can come to him, you can bring it to him. And then I'll pray for us in just a moment.